And we come now to the time of the proclamation of God's word as we continue through our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're starting to get close to the end. We are following Christ as he marches with his disciples southward, traveling ever closer to Jerusalem and ever closer to the cross, that great climax in God's redemptive plan. And we find ourselves in Matthew 18 this morning, another discourse of Jesus' teachings. Beginning in verse 1, we read, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into the fire, eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you did not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, He rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We ask now that your spirit would work in our hearts, that you would help us once again to see the face of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. And the world uh, in which we live tells us that if we want to be great, if we want to be something, we must struggle and we must strive. Everything is a competition. Everything is a conflict. And if you want to be the best, you need to fight your way to the top. You need to push aside others, work harder, better than everyone else to create your own success and and become the best you possibly can. And we see that, that, that consuming drive to be the greatest, the best, all around us. It's been the drive of of, of humans from the very beginning of time to achieve greatness at whatever cost. And so we see it in our political leaders of all parties and stripes. We see it within the corporate boardrooms and the office cube farm. We find it even within the halls of our own homes 
and sadly, even within the church. From the marbled halls of world governments to the comfortable confines of our living rooms, people are engaged in a struggle for greatness. And that struggle is so exhausting. The competition, the the constant pushing to become the best, the drive to achieve, it wears us down. It disappoints us. And eventually, it can destroy us. And no wonder then that so many people in this world today are filled with insecurity and with anger and just a general sense of despair. We are killing ourselves with our own pride. Because the kingdom of this world says the only way to be great, the only way to be successful is through this chaotic struggle to be the absolute best. But thanks be to God, the kingdom of heaven is different. The kingdom of Christ is different. Jesus offers an alternative. You see, in his kingdom, instead of this exhausting struggle, there's rest. Instead of insecurity, there's safety. Instead of conflict, there's real peace. Instead of anger, there is forgiveness. Instead of despair, there is hope. And instead of pride, there is humility. Matthew 18 is another discourse of Jesus' gathered teachings that Matthew has laced through the overall narrative of his gospel. And he's done this several times. For example, the Sermon on the Mount was one of these these, uh, discourses of his teachings. And here, we are given a picture of the structure of the kingdom, of the actual community, of what that life is like, and how we interact with one another. And we see this radically different kingdom that is Christ, that is set apart from the kingdom of this world. And Jesus says here that to be the greatest in his kingdom, you need to become the lowest. The citizens of the kingdom of heaven are marked by humility rather than pride. And that humility that characterizes Christ kingdom begins to emerge in three different ways in our text this morning. The first one is this, is that humility is what actually carries you into the kingdom. Now let's remember where we are in Matthew's narrative. He has just finished teaching his disciples about the freedom that is theirs in the gospel. And he explained that freedom through this picture, this image of a king and his sons. And as sons of the king, uh, Jesus' disciples, they are free from the curse of the loss and in death. They are free to enjoy God in all his blessings without fear of his justice and wrath. And they are free to love others. And since they are part of Christ's kingdom, part of this structure, the question naturally flows from the disciples' minds then, well, if we're part of this kingdom and we're actually sons of the king, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And they ask that, of course, right here in verse 1. And it's, it's to be Fair is, is, is not a bad question to ask if you're looking at it through uh, the understanding or the filter of worldly kingdoms. I mean, remember the way that 
Matthew presents Jesus in this gospel is that Christ is the king and he is building a kingdom and all who belong to Christ are part of that kingdom. Kingdoms naturally have structure, right? At the very least, they have a king who is overall. So they, they have a hierarchy. There are layers and levels of authority and power. And it, that applies to any kingdom, whether it's a national kingdom or if it's a, a corporate one. There are, there's an authority structure, a top down. There are people at the top and people at the bottom. That's the way the world works. So how do you get to those higher positions in the kingdom. How do you become great? How do you move up the ladder? As Jesus often does, he responds to his disciples with an illustration. And he calls a little child over. I mean, you don't know how old this child is. The, the, the word that he uses is, is, is a very young child, probably toddler, maybe up to grammar school age, but a very young child. And he brings that child in the midst to them and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is getting at here is a matter of position rather than some assumed virtuous quality of children. In other words, he isn't saying, well, be curious like a child or be trusting as a child uh, to trust their parents or or be dependent like a child is dependent on others uh, for care. And all those things are good to think about and they certainly can be helpful. But that isn't what Jesus is after here. Rather, he is getting at the idea of position. Remember, the question of greatness is a question of position or status. How do I get to that higher level? How do I become the greatest in the kingdom? And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom, disciples, you must take the position of a child. And what is that position? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty low. I mean... In the culture where Jesus is speaking this, as it is in many cultures, children were relatively unnoticed. They were the lowest in a kingdom's hierarchy. Notice something else Jesus says here. He says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. You will never enter the kingdom. Here the disciples, they're asking, uh, what would be, or how do I become the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says, don't worry about becoming the greatest. What you should consider is if you are even part of it. Are you a citizen of this kingdom? You see, it takes a, a humble submission to Christ the king if you're even going to walk through its gates. Humility, submitting to Christ, carries you into the kingdom. And Jesus calls this kind of humility, he says, it is a change, a turning. He says, you must turn and become like children. And that's repentance. That's what it is. Turning implies you were going one direction, and now you've changed directions and you're going another. And again, the kingdom of this world that we find ourselves in says, make yourself great. Embrace your own pride. Be who you are. Become the best you can be. Look to your own power. Become what you are destined to be. Fight for what is rightfully yours. 
The kingdom of the world also says, well, compare yourself to others and see how much better you are than they. But Jesus says, if you do that, if you seek your own glory, if you look to your own pride, if you try to enter this kingdom through your own strength because you think you are something great, you will not enter this kingdom. You will be on the outside looking in. Jesus says, you must change in your heart. You must repent. You must turn away from your pride and instead submit, lower yourself to Christ. Stop trying to make yourself great and instead become low. You see, the humble, the poor in spirit that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, they see themselves as God sees them. They see themselves as sinners in need of rescuing, as rebels who have broken his holy law. And so they plead for God's mercy. The gospel doesn't make excuses for sin. It doesn't say, well, this is just the way I am. I can't do anything about it. It says, no, this is the way I am. I have broken God's law. But thanks to me, go to God, he is merciful to forgive. And so this turning, this humbling, this submission and repentance, it lays out in the open what we are. And it's honest. We are rebels who have broken his law. And when we do that, we are showing the humility of true repentance. And we are then brought by forgiving grace and redeeming love into the kingdom of God. It is that humility, that repentance, that trusting in Christ that carries you into the kingdom. Now, even that repentance, that turning from trying to become something great to now saying, no, I will become low, I will acknowledge who I really am, even that repentance and that faith, that, the Bible tells us, is God's gift to us, a gift of His grace. It is a gift that, of course, results in becoming part of Christ's kingdom. And it does that because of what Christ has done. And what did he do? Well, he became low, the lowest of the low. You see, ultimately, it isn't our humility that carries us into the kingdom. I mean, while that is a necessary means, faith and repentance, it isn't the actual work that we do, that results in our heavenly citizenship, the ultimate humility that carries us into the kingdom of heaven is Jesus' own humility. I mean, think about it. Jesus says here, he says, the greatest in the kingdom are those who have become the lowest. Who's the highest in his kingdom? Well, it's the king. It's Jesus. It's himself. It's Christ. He is the king after all. And though he being king... What did he do? He lowered himself in the greatest act of humility this world has ever witnessed. And so Paul writes to us in Philippians 2, in that passage that is very familiar to many Christians. He says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And so the king of all creation, he humbles himself by leaving the glories of heaven and dwelling amongst his fallen creation, robing himself Himself in flesh and bone. And he, being the greatest in the kingdom, became the lowest. So that we, when we turn to him in humility, when we become low, he might lift us up to himself in glory. As Athanasius, one of those early church fathers, once said, Jesus, he became who we are or what we are so that we might become what he is. A son or a daughter, a child of God. Through the humility of Christ, the son of God, we become those sons and daughters. Through the righteousness of Jesus, we become righteous. Through the holiness of Christ Jesus, we are made holy So humility, the humility of Christ is what carries us into his kingdom. So that when we, in humble repentance and reliance upon him, do turn to him in repentance and faith, that results in true greatness. The greatness of being part of God's covenant family. Humility carries us into the kingdom. But secondly, humility keeps us in the kingdom through continual confession. Now we'll come back to this image of little children in a moment. But first, let's skip down to verses 8 and 9. And and notice what Jesus says here. This is shocking language again. He says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better to enter into life with one eye rather than with two eyes to be thrown into a hell of fire. And those, as we know, they're hard sayings of Jesus. And this isn't the first time, though, we've seen him say this. In fact, back in the Sermon on the Mount, way back in Matthew chapter 5, he says almost the exact same words. What that means, then, this is a message that he proclaimed during his earthly ministry often. If your hand, your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, He doesn't literally mean pull your eye out or cut off your hand or your foot. He's he's using these uh, this this graphic language to arrest our attention. He wants us to understand that no, your sin is that serious. It is that bad. It is so bad and so condemning that it would be better off that you went through life as a cripple or as a blind person rather than suffer the consequences that your sin merits. That's how bad it is. Or as John Owen put it, be killing sin or sin be killing you. And what Jesus is describing here is what we call sanctification. Now, that's one of those words we hear within the church, within theology, and we're like, yeah, sanctification. And then we don't really think about what that means, or perhaps we're confused about it. What is sanctification? Well, it is the work of God's free grace, 
whereby the believer is renewed in the whole person after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin, to cut off the hand, cut off the foot, not the literal ones, but to die to that sin and to live unto righteousness. You see, sanctification is that part of our salvation that's an actual process. That's why we call it a work of God. It is God's work within us. It is God's grace being worked into our lives in an ongoing, day-by-day, moment-by-moment manner. It, it involves the Holy Spirit bringing to light what we have done against God and against our neighbor, how we have sinned and how he has broken our, his, his law. And then it is also confessing that sin for what it is and thereby turning to Christ, putting to death that sin, cutting it off. Now it's important to distinguish sanctification from justification because this is where many Christians get confused. Justification is an act of God whereby he does what? He declares us as believing sinners to be righteous in Christ. He says, though you are unrighteous because of the righteousness of Christ in which you are clothed, I declare you just. You've been justified. Now that's a one-time thing. It doesn't happen again and again and again in one's life. God does that when he redeems us, when we are saved. But this other aspect of salvation, sanctification, this is a daily thing that happens in our life. And that is why life has so many ups and downs as a Christian. Highs and lows, mountains and valleys, twists and turns. That is why at times as a Christian in your life, you feel very ashamed of your sin. You may feel very far from God. You feel like you cannot glorify Him or live for Him or or do anything that would please Him in any way, shape, or form. You find yourself struggling through sin and temptations of your old heart. Sometimes you feel like your faith is strong. Other times you feel it is weak and you are barely holding, holding on. That is this process of sanctification. The ups and the downs as God is working His grace into our lives. As Jesus says here in our text, the world is full of temptations. And he says those are necessary. Now, he doesn't mean by that that we need those temptations as if they uh, are springing from some uh, divine purpose. Of course, God does have a purpose for everything. But by necessary, he means that they exist. They exist Because we live in this fallen world, they are there. It's like saying that, you know what, I live in a world, therefore pain is necessary because pain exists. That is what he means. Temptations exist. Stumbling into sin is going to happen. Nobody, not even the greatest believer, the greatest Christian, is so strong in their faith that they live a life that is uh, sinless, that is perfect. Because the only person that ever did that was Christ. So people are going to stumble. You're going to sin. But what separates the citizens of Christ's kingdom from the citizens of the world's kingdom is the humility. It's saying, yeah, I will cut off the hand or the foot. I'll do what I need to. Whatever is causing me to to embrace the sin, I will gouge out that. I will look to Christ. I will confess that I have broken His law. I will seek the grace that He offers me. 
rather than, as people in the kingdom of this world will do, embrace that sin, rationalize it, justify it in their minds, make themselves great by comparing themselves to others who they perceive to be worse than them. In other words, a disciple of Christ becomes low, like a child, through confession as a regular and necessary part of life. And that is humbling, to say the least. It is a humble reliance upon the work of Christ, saying, you know, I can't make my life better. I need Christ to save me, to pull out this gangrene of sin that keeps showing up in my heart and in my life. And when we do that, when we repent, when we bring ourselves low, we find forgiveness. We find God lifting us up once again. And he keeps lifting us up. That's the amazing thing about sanctification and why it's a work. And thank God it is a work, an ongoing work of his grace. Because if it was a one-time thing, we would be done for. But God is so merciful and so forgiving that as we trip and as we fall and as we stumble, when we do come in repentance before him, bringing ourselves low, He does forgive us and lift us up until one day he will lift us up so that our eyes will see what we believe and know to be true in our hearts, the glory of Christ. He will lift us up to heaven's perfection as we are glorified. We are made completely free from sin forevermore. I definitely look forward to that day. I believe we all do. But until that day, because of the kingdom of Christ is not complete yet, it's, it's here, but not perfected yet. Until that day, we keep walking in that kingdom through humble confession. Which, by the way, is why it's part of the regular worship of God's people. There is very much a corporate side to our sanctification. You see, we need each other. We are called to serve one another as Christians in a community of faith, a covenant community called the church, helping one another to grow in that faith so that when we stumble, when we sin, we have others there who can take us by the hand and help us to once again walk in the new life that is ours in Christ. Jesus tells us, And verse 5 and 6, backing up again, that whoever receives a child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, uh, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, Jesus has in mind here with these words more than just a physical child. He has in mind... Anyone who is a believer, after all, you have to become like a child to enter into the kingdom. In fact, he carefully qualifies what he means by little ones by saying these are the little ones who believe in me. So he's not just thinking of those who are young in age, but all who have humbled themselves before the Lord in faith. And he says, if you receive a little one into, into this coveted community, a person who is young in their faith, perhaps, or immature in their faith, to, re, 
you are in a sense receiving Christ. Now, to receive literally is to, to accept with warmth, with a friendly welcome. It's to accept them for who they are in Christ because of what Jesus has done for them. You see, Christ will receive the worst of sinners who fall before him in humble reliance and confession. And thus, when God's people, when the church welcomes even those with the smallest spark of faith, they're walking in the footsteps of their master. They are following his humble example. And that is exactly what discipleship is all about. But notice there's a contrast here. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, so you can receive them, you can encourage them to grow in their faith, bringing them into your midst. But if you cause them to stumble stumble into sin, then it is better that you be drowned in the ocean. And the idea of leading another person into sin, causing them to stumble, is a dangerous thing. That's the point. Jesus wants you to know, don't do that. Don't be so prideful that you will hurt others by causing them to sin. We see pride drive people to hurt others and cause them to stumble in so many ways. Jesus doesn't give us examples, but I think we can understand how it happens. I mean, it, it can be a leader within a church who gathers a following through honeyed words and cool charisma, but he never shares with them the goodness of the gospel. I mean, false gospels and contra-biblical theology have been a tool of Satan to deceive and attack the church since its very inception. And church history, we acknowledge, is full of no shortage of charlatans and heretics who have deceived many people and led them astray, causing the little ones to stumble. But pride can also be the cause of another stumbling because... We are unwilling to come alongside those who may be struggling, those who may need us to show them the love of Christ. I mean, going back to this idea of little children, children are are pretty helpless most of the time. They rely on others to assist them, to care for them, to sustain them, to clothe them, to defend them. And it is no different with children of faith. We all have our struggles, our weaknesses, our failures, and our needs. But if in pride we seek our own greatness, what happens is we don't see those weaknesses. We ignore them. And so those are forgotten. And many a person has the sad tale of falling away from the faith because when they look to others for help, They could not find it, for it was God's people failed to care to provide the kindness and the mercy that they needed in that moment of their lives. Which brings us to a third point concerning humility in our text that Jesus teaches us. And that is this, is that humility will care for the weakest of sheep. Humility will care for the weakest of sheep wanderer who goes off on their own. In verse 10, Jesus gives his followers an imperative. 
He says this, he says, see to it or, or pay careful attention to this, that you do not despise, that you do not scorn, that you do not look down upon, sounds like pride again, or feel contempt for one of these little ones. I mean, this commandment, you see, it's, it's keeping with this theme of humility that is in this whole discourse. Those who seek greatness, those who engage in the struggle that this kingdom of this world presents them, they try to make themselves better than everyone else by despising or looking down upon those who they deem to be lower than them. That's the hierarchy of the kingdom of the world. And as fallen sinful humans, we play this, this vicious game of comparison. I mean, self-exaltation by default means I automatically consider myself at least in some way better than others. And so that leads to treating others in this condescending manner, flowing from this heart of pride. That is what Jesus is warning against. Because it is a heart of pride that fails to see what God sees when looking at others. Jesus says in verse 10, that these little ones have their angels always before the face of the Father in heaven. Now, he doesn't mean here that everyone has this personal guardian angel. Um, We really don't see that concept taught within the scriptures. It probably originated, seems to be uh, sometime in the Middle Ages. But there are angels in heaven. And they do serve the Lord. The Bible teaches that the angels are the servants of God. They do His will. And we find in Scripture that they intervene into history at times when God is performing His mighty works in a supernatural and redemptive way. Uh, For example, angels were heavily involved, as we saw in the Christmas story, in the incarnation and birth of Christ. Um, angels in the Bible would often rescue people from danger. Think of the story of Lot and his family as they lead them away from the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Angels could also be the instrument of that judgment as we think of the plagues upon Egypt and this angel of death that fell in that final plague. They are all means of carrying out God's will throughout his redemptive purposes in the world. And scripture does speak of angels in a general manner, guarding or watching over the people of God. Uh, Psalm 91, for example, says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And the point, though, of the angels' care that we see in scriptures, including here in Matthew 18, isn't so much the fact that there are angels, supernatural beings, guarding the people of God. And we aren't to simply just focus on these angels. If we do that, we're missing the bigger picture. You see, the angels are simply the means of God's care for his people. That's what Christ means here. These little ones are seen by the Father. Now the angels are merely doing God's will, and His will is to care and guard for His own. And so Jesus gives a little story to further illustrate how God the Father cares even for the weakest wandering soul who has strayed from His protective care. 
And so he says in verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go search for that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety and nine that never went astray. And it's such a beautiful picture, this little parable. A shepherd pursuing this wandering sheep who has escaped and is lost until he finds it and can bring it back to the security of the flock. But this is what's so beautiful about this. It's not just a lovely little story. It's something that happens in real life again and again and again, because it's describing how the father brings his own back into the sheepfold. I mean, many of us, no doubt, have witnessed friends and family, sometimes perhaps our own children, sister, brother, spouse, wander away from the truth of the gospel. Some of us may have been that wandering sheep, that weak sheep, that prodigal who fled the Lord, abandoned our faith. But when God, in His grace, determines to rescue and redeem. Not even our unbelief can stop His saving hand from reaching us. We may run from Him, as Francis Thompson so eloquently describes in his poem, The Hound of Heaven, where the person says, I fled from Him down the nights and down the days. I fled Him down the arches of the years. I fled Him down the labyrinthian ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. Trying to escape, wandering from the Lord. But then the Father sends the hound of heaven to pursue the wanderer, His own Son who with gentle care tracks down the weakest of the wandering soul to rescue them. For as Jesus says in verse 14, it is not the will of the Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You see, every person that God has determined that he is going to redeem will be redeemed. And so you may have friends or family, those who you have been praying for for so long that you know are wandering from the sheepfold, from the the loving shepherd's care. Don't stop praying for them. Because God is a good redeemer and he can and will track them down if it be his will. You see, when God purposes to save the weakest wandering soul, he does what he must do to track them down with his grace. Grace that was personified in Christ the Savior, who being the greatest, was willing to become the least in the kingdom so that he can bring wanderers like you and I into that kingdom. Humility cares for the weakest of wanderers. So if you are tired of running after your own greatness, if you are tired and weary of the conflict of trying to be somebody, become like a child. Humble yourself before the Savior. And let Him minister to the sorrow and the hurt and the pain and the shame of your failures. 
Let him lift you up by his grace. Turn, as Jesus says, as he calls out, turn, become like a child, become like a little one. Cut off the hand, cut off the foot of sin that would destroy you by looking to him in faith who will save you. He who was the greatest in the kingdom has become the lowest so that he might pull you up from your low estate and set you at the foot of heaven's throne. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that our Savior was willing to humble himself for people like us who are so undeserving of his mercy. For Father, we often boast in our pride. We often pick up the hammer and try to do the work on our own. We try to be the greatest. But Father, I pray that you would continue to remind us of your grace. That you would continue to remind us that it is not those who seek to be the greatest that are the greatest, but those who confess that they are sinners and become the lowest. And that you lift us up by your mercy, which forgives We pray that you would remind us of these things as we grow as a church, as we interact as a community of faith, that we would not despise those that are the weakest, but that we would lift them up and come alongside them, that we would not think of ourselves to be great, for we know that we are all equally guilty of breaking your law. Help us to show this humility as a testimony of the greatness of the gospel to this world that so desperately needs to see it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.